0: If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at Matthew 19, verse 16 to verse 30. If you're reading the New Testament with us this year, the chapters that you're reading this week are Matthew 16 to 20. So I've talked to several people. I know some of you are reading all of those chapters daily. Some of you are reading one of those chapters a day as you go through the week, Uh, but that's the window that we're in this week, Matthew 16 to 20, and tonight we're going to talk about the familiar story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And we talked recently about the parable of the soils in Matthew, and I told you that really we ought to call that parable the parable of the sower in the soils because that encapsulates The point of the story a little bit better. I think this story, although we often focus on the rich young ruler, he's the anti-climax of the story. The story continues after he leaves the scene, and so maybe we would say this is the story of Jesus, the rich young ruler, and the disciples. So a couple of contextual things that we need to put in place that will help us get our bearings As we jump into this passage and try to make sense of what the text is saying. By the time you get to Matthew 19, Jesus has twice recently predicted his death and his resurrection. You find that in Matthew 16. You find it again in Matthew chapter 17. And as you keep reading, you'll find a third prediction from Jesus about his death and his resurrection in Matthew chapter 20. And I just want to put that on the table at the outset because at the end of the night, we're going to come back to the idea of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we've sung tonight about victory in Jesus and the old rugged cross and Jesus going up the mountain, bearing the cross and bearing our sin and the love that he has for us is because all of those thoughts permeate this part of the gospel of Matthew. Jesus keeps telling his disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise from the dead. That's baked into the cake as we look at this story tonight. In our passage, Matthew 19, 16 to 30, it's basically a conversation. Really, it's two conversations. And the first conversation is a man who approaches Jesus and initiates a conversation based on a question that he has. When you read about this man in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark call him a man. He is a man. They go on to say that he's a young man. When you read about this story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke points out to us specifically that he is a ruler. And so you sort of add all of those details up together, and we know this man as the rich young ruler. All of the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who tell this story, indicate that the man had great wealth. So we call him the rich young ruler. I want you to understand how this story operates. You're familiar with it, but I just want you to see how the actual narrative works because it really does help you make sense of the big idea and the big takeaway of this interaction. This story operates on the basis of two wrong assumptions. First, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he wrongly assumes that he has the ability to do some good thing that will earn him a place in heaven. He wrongly assumes that he can do something that will earn him a spot in heaven. The disciples, as you continue in the story in the rich young ruler exits stage left, the disciples also have a wrong assumption. Their assumption, very wrong, is that financial means, earthly wealth, is somehow a sign, a sure and a certain sign of God's favor in a person's life. So there's two wrong assumptions that drive the tension that drive the plot forward in this particular story. So here's the big idea, very simple and we'll loop back to this as we talk about Jesus and the disciples on the tail end of the story, the salvation of a sinner is the work of God. The salvation of any and every sinner is God's work. He is the one who saves. We don't save ourselves, but God is the one who saves sinners. So just see the big picture before we we read this story. There's two conversations. The conversations build, and both conversations are rooted in a misunderstanding or a wrong assumption. The first wrong assumption, the rich young ruler, I can do some good thing to earn my salvation. That leads into, it builds into the second conversation, Jesus and the disciples, where the disciples assume that rich people have a leg up in this work towards ultimate salvation, that God is already predisposed to love them because they have earthly wealth in some way. And understand, both of these conversations center around the question of salvation. So if your Bible's open before we even read the text, if you look at verse 16, the rich young ruler comes and he says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He's asking a question about salvation. And there's another question that drives this story forward. If you look to the next paragraph and you see what the disciples say in verse 25, they are greatly astonished and they say, who then can be saved? So you have to two conversations that center around this question of salvation. The first question, what good thing do I need to do in order to be saved? And then the second question is, if that rich guy can't be saved, or he can't be saved easily, who in the world can be saved? So we're talking about salvation in this story. Just to give you a complete spoiler alert, the heartbeat of this passage is verse 26. Jesus says, with man This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So, that's the overview. Let's read it, let's pray, and let's jump in. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, tonight uh, we gather together as your people. We have read your word. We believe that this is your word. We believe that it's true. We believe that Jesus spoke with authority. We believe that Matthew recorded what uh, the Spirit inspired him to write and so our prayer is simply that you would take this story and that you would press it home to our hearts and that we would see very important basic gospel truths as we think about this question of salvation. So we ask for your help tonight and we ask in Jesus name. Amen. So the year is 2022. Everywhere you go there's cell phones. Everywhere you go, people have Bluetooth earpieces in, and increasingly, everywhere you go, people are just walking around on FaceTime or Skype or whatever, talking to people who are not there with them, and you have had this experience, I'm quite certain, of being in some sort of public place where you're around people. And they are on their phone or on their Bluetooth or on their FaceTime or on speakerphone, and they are talking very loudly with somebody on the phone, and you are there and you think, I don't want to hear any of this. Just last night, I was with my kids in sort of a lobby to a building, and there was a man on speakerphone. And there was a conversation coming from the phone very loudly that I did not need my children to hear. And I thought, this is exactly what I'm talking about tomorrow night. I don't want to hear any of this. But you've had that exact experience. And I bring it up to say, that's what we're doing tonight. We are eavesdropping on two conversations. First, we have the privilege of eavesdropping on the conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler... And then he leaves, and he's gone. And the conversation that Jesus has with him is just sort of tabled and left unresolved. And there's another conversation. And the conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler builds to the climax in this second conversation. And again, we get to eavesdrop on what Jesus has to say to the disciples. So we're just going to take each of these conversations In turn, the first one is Jesus and the rich young ruler. And the first thing that you need to notice in this story is that by default, human beings assume that salvation is a work of man. And if you're taking notes and you have the memory of a goldfish, you can turn your notes over and you can say, wait a minute, this is not right. Because the big idea of this passage is that salvation is the work of God. And that's right. That's true. Human beings mistakenly all operate by default with this understanding that salvation is a work of man. And you see it on display very clearly. Matthew chapter 19 verse 16. The man came up to Jesus saying, what good deed must I do to have eternal life he assumes that he has the ability to do good deeds and he assumes that his salvation hinges on how many or what kind or the total amount of good deeds that he does in the end he assumes that he's got to do something this is the default operating system for human beings This is the bottom level baseline teaching of every man-made religion on the planet other than biblical Christianity is that you must do something in order to receive salvation. We are born with the heart of a Pharisee, all of us. And we have this built-in notion that God or the universe We had a conversation on the way to school. One of my daughters asked me, what is karma? So we talked about karma and dharma in Hinduism. So there's no God in that system, but there's something out there. There's this built-in understanding or built-in assumption in our hearts. Apart from God's grace, we show up and we assume, like Pharisees, that we need to do some good thing. That the God or the universe or the whatever or the whoever is waiting for us to clean up ourselves morally and spiritually so that we can then be presentable to him. The biblical teaching is you can't do that. You won't do that. And good news, the God of the Bible is not sitting up in the heavens waiting for you to do that. But by default, this is how human beings operate. That I need to do something. And I'll just warn you, because you're the Wednesday night crowd. I tell you all the time, you're the spiritual elite. You're the best of the best. I'm preaching to the choir on Wednesday nights. But listen, even as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that tendency in our heart pops up all the time to think that I've got to perform for God to love me. If I don't do these things or I don't do them well enough, God's gonna love me less. You, you start to think to yourself, we haven't even got to the end of January and I'm behind on my New Testament Bible reading plan. God is so angry with me. He's so disappointed in me. If only I could keep up with the five chapters a week, then God would really love me. That's the default operating system coming through, saying I've got to do a good thing in order to receive eternal life. Here's the second thing that you need to notice. Your view of God, and by extension, your view of Scripture, but I'm really focusing on your view of God, will shape your view of self. This is an inverse relationship. The lower your view of God, the higher your view of self will be. The higher your view of God is, the lower your view of self will be. This is a seesaw, a spiritual seesaw. These things are connected and you see it here in this story. Jesus, when the man says, what good thing must I do? You understand? Jesus could have looked at him. He could have used my first point. He could have just stopped the man in his tracks and said, listen up, bozo. That's not how it works. I know you've think that, and you feel that, and I know that because you're a sinner, your heart leans that way, but that's not how it works. Jesus could have been very blunt and very direct with him. When you read the Gospels, pay attention to this as you read through the New Testament, Jesus is usually not very direct. There's times when he's very direct. With the Pharisees, he's often very direct. With some of his enemies, at times, he's very direct. There's other times where he's not very blunt and he's not very direct, and rather than just drop a truth bomb on somebody, he tries to engage them on a heart level and he tries to force them to think, and that's what Jesus does with this rich young man. Verse 17, Jesus knows that he's off on this assumption about goodness and good deeds and things that he can do. So Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? I want you to think about your definition of good. Jesus says there's only one who is good. And you know as you read that, that's the ultimate Sunday school answer, right? That he's talking about God, right? Right, yes, he's saying, your view of of goodness is skewed and he's pointing him back to who God is and then he points him to God's word and he says keep the commandments. So Jesus is not just dropping a big confrontational argument on this guy, but he's putting the answers out there, and if this guy really wants to think about it, he'll chew on these things. And Jesus is saying, well, you need to think about how you define good. You need to remember that God is the standard of goodness. You need to remember that God has spoken to his people in his word, what we call the Old Testament, in the law, and that God's word is the revelation of, of goodness and is the full revelation of God's character. So, in my Sunday school class, we're working through the Gospel Project. I know some of our classes use that. Other classes use different material. But this last week in the Gospel Project, we talked about the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that we talked about in my Sunday school class is the Ten Commandments certainly tell God's people what to do and what not to do, right? Do this, don't do this do this, don't do this, 10 points. But one of the things that the 10 commandments also do is they reveal the character of God. And this is true of any law that is made. And we talked about examples in my Sunday school class. We talked about laws in the United States about speed limits. In Odessa, they're more like recommendations, but they're laws. That tells you something about our society that we do don't want people driving like crazy folks because we don't think it's safe and we think safety is important so we make a law about that we also have laws about abortion and that tells you something about our society and what we value or don't value listen it's true of any law it reveals the character of the lawmaker the lawgiver and that is certainly true of the 10 commandments so i'm going to put one through 10 up here I'm not listing what the commandments are, but I'm telling you what each of these commandments teach us about God. Commandment number one, you will have no other gods before me. That reminds you that God is holy. Commandment number two, you will not make or worship idols. That reminds you that God is not physical like us. He's a spirit. Commandment number three, use God's name with respect. That reminds you that he is worthy of your respect. Commandment number four, keep the Sabbath. That reminds us that God is a God who works and then rested. He did that in creation, and he says that we ought to do the same thing. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. It teaches us that God is our heavenly father. Commandment number six, do not murder. It reminds us that God is the giver of life. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. It reminds us that God is always faithful to his people. His people are faithless, but God is faithful to his people. Commandment number eight, do not steal. It reminds us that God owns everything, and he gives everything to whom he wants to give it to. Commandment number nine, do not lie, reminds us that God is truth. Commandment number 10, do not covet, reminds us that we ought to be good stewards of what God gives us, and God is the provider of everything that we have. We ought to be thankful Each of those commandments not only tells you what to do and not do, it also tells you something about God. So you understand when Jesus looks at this rich young man and he says to him, why do you call me good? Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good, Sunday school answer, that's God. Keep the commandments. He's not just telling him what to do. He's reminding him that God is the ultimate standard of goodness. And Jesus is not just coming out and saying this. He's making the rich young ruler think. And what he wants him to think about is, you know, my view of God is probably too low. And my view of self is all out of whack. And I need to have a higher view of God, and I need to have a lower view of self. So Jesus, in this passage, he doesn't refer to all of the commandments, but if my count is right, he refers to 6, 7, 8, 9, and 5 in that order. 6, 7, 8, 9, 5. And then he quotes the book of Leviticus. Jesus says this, quoting Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands how many of you thought Jesus made that up. Jesus didn't invent love your neighbor as yourself. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's in the third book of the Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. That reveals, that law, reveals something about God's character and Jesus wants this man to think my view of God will shape my view of self. This is true in churches, denominations, is true among pastors today. If you find a church that has a low view of God's word and a low view of God's character, invariably they will have a high view of human beings and our goodness and our abilities. And when you find a church or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or whatever, a denomination, that has a low view of human beings and talks about sin invariably, it's not just that they're miserable and down on themselves, it's because they have a high view of God and they have a high view of God's word. So your view of God and scripture will shape your view of self. The rich young ruler is not listening to any of this, which brings me to the next point. Those who think they can earn their salvation are often focused on the bare minimum. Jesus points him to the commandments. Look what the rich young ruler says in verse 18. Which ones? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? There's a parallel conversation. I'll give you homework. Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, a lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. And that lawyer in Luke 11 asks Jesus the exact same question that the rich young ruler asked him. Look what we read in Luke chapter 11. Teacher, what shall I do? What shall I do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And do you know what? I didn't put the intervening verses, but Jesus basically says the same thing to this lawyer that he said to the rich young ruler. Jesus says, well, you probably ought to Keep the law of God. Keep the commandments. You should love God first, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Greatest commandment, second greatest commandment. Why don't you just keep the commandments? And then we read this in Luke eleven twenty nine. 29. He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? How far do I have to take this? What's the bare minimum? That will get me by. That's the question that the rich young ruler is asking here. Teacher, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, why don't you start with keeping the commandments? Which ones? All ten? Nine out of ten? Eight out of ten? Can you rank them for me? Can you weight them? He wants to know the very, very bare minimum. When Brooke and I were in college... I remember we would come down to the end of a semester. We would be in some accounting class. We would add up our grades throughout the semester. And we knew the formula for how the professor was gonna give the final grade. And it would be the week of finals. And we would do this math, as accountants, we were able to do this math. And we would come to finals week and we would have it all figured out and we would say, all we have to get on the final exam is a 22, and we'll pass the class. And then we would do the math, and we would say, okay, maybe we want a B. Maybe we don't want a 70. Maybe we want a B. If we want a B in the class, all we have to get on the final is a 46. That's, how hard could it be to get a 46? 46. Now luckily for both of us, we competed against each other because we were in most of the same classes. So we really never ended up shooting for the bare minimum and we tried to outdo each other. But it's the bare minimum. Do you see that in society? People living as if they only want to do the bare minimum? I don't know about you. I see it all over the place. I just think it's a human nature thing. What is the bare minimum? I think students do it. I had plenty of professors who did the bare minimum to get their paycheck and get by. So it's not just students. I think employees do it. What is the bare minimum I need to do in this job to not get fired and collect a paycheck? I think employers do it to their employees. What's the bare minimum that I have to pay this person so they don't quit and take a job somewhere else? What's the bare minimum? I don't want to go over and above. I'm just looking for the bare minimum. I think church members do this at times, and to be totally transparent, I think pastors do it at times. What's the bare minimum that I have to do to get my. That's essentially the question this guy's asking. It's a preposterous question when you have a high view of God. It's a question that only makes sense when you have a low view of God and a high view of self. And when you get that spiritual seesaw balanced out the way that it belongs, and you have a proper understanding of God who is holy, 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 the very question on your tongue sounds preposterous. What is the bare minimum that I need to do to get by with God, the creator, almighty Lord of heaven and earth, who is holy, Holy, holy. It's a preposterous question, but it's a question that he's asking. It's the bare minimum. Next, those who think they can earn their salvation, this won't surprise you, they are blind to their own sin. Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. What good thing do I need to do? Keep the commandments. Which ones? 6, 7, 8, 9, 5. Leviticus 19, 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. Six, seven, eight, nine, love your neighbor as yourself. I have done all of that. Parents, this is like sending your child to clean their room Which you know is a disaster. You've seen it and you've smelled it. And you have felt the anxiety in your heart when you peeked in that room. And you say to your kids, Go clean your room. And your child comes back in about 43 seconds and says, Done. You don't need to go look, do you? You know not done. You didn't do it. There's no way. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing for you to even say. Just turn around and go back and try again. Come back in another 43 seconds. It's not done. This guy looks at Jesus and he says, all that's done. All that's done. It's mildly annoying when your children say that about picking up their room. It is eternally done. Dangerous when you say this about keeping God's law. And you look the Son of Man in the eyeballs and you say, Yeah, I've done all of that. He's completely blind to his own sin. You know as well as I do that people today are quick to admit that they are not perfect. People will admit that. Hey, I'm no, I'm no saint, I'm not perfect but the vast majority of us are walking around with a a spiritual seesaw that's all out of whack with a high view of self and a low view of God and we have no concept of the horror of our sin in light of God's holiness. Those who think they can earn their salvation are often blind to their own sin. Last, you cannot separate worship and salvation. Christians in the United States try to do this, by the way. Christians in the United States, we talked about this Sunday with the parable of the soil, they want to connect salvation and the decision. Jesus connects salvation to worship, and you cannot separate those things. Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, Jesus finally just cuts to the chase. This is where he gets direct. Jesus says, go, sell, sell, Give and follow. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The question Jesus is finally driving at here is what are you going to worship? You cannot worship God and money. And so, for this young man, he had to make a decision. And his salvation is tied to whatever it is that he worships. In this case, it's his money. You know, there's places in the Old Testament where God's people, in their affliction, cry out to Yahweh to save them. You read this in the book of Judges. And God replies back to his people, why don't you let your idols save you? You worship them. Why don't you look to them for salvation? It's the connection. Whatever you worship is what you are looking to for salvation. Now, I personally have no doubt that this rich young ruler, if you just said as he's walking away, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop, stop, stop. Turn around. Do you worship the God of Israel? I think he would have said yes. I think he had fooled himself into thinking, yeah. I worship the God of Israel. I don't worship Baal. I don't worship Molech. I don't worship Asherah. But Jesus has cut to the point here. He's cut to the chase. And he says, go, sell, give, follow. And he walks away sad because he refuses to stop worshiping his money. So that's conversation number one. It's sad. It's really, really sad. Then we pivot we talk about Jesus and the disciples because the conversation continues and it builds. So what do we learn as we eavesdrop on Jesus and the disciples? Number one, money, wealth, and possessions are dangerous. And what I mean is they're spiritually dangerous. And living where we live, when we live, we can all cut the nonsense in saying, well, thank goodness I'm not wealthy. I mean, My wife's a CPA. She does taxes for people in Odessa. So I understand what wealthy looks like in Odessa. But you live in the United States of America in the 21st century. You're in the wealthy category. You may not be where you'd like to be in the wealthy category, but you're in it. Jesus is saying money, wealth, and possessions are spiritually dangerous. Look at verse 23 and verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now listen, I know there's a lot of speculation. A lot of you have heard preachers or books or whoever talk about Jesus. is. He's referring to this gate in Jerusalem and the guys would ride their camels and it was a low gate and they had to get down and they had to wiggle through and you kind of had to get on your knees and it's kind of like you had to humble yourself. And Okay, maybe, maybe. I don't think so, but maybe. If you want to believe that, that's fine. I just think this is classic Jesus hyperbole to make a point. Just Jesus saying something so preposterous, he is grabbing you by the spiritual shirt collars and he's shaking you. And he's saying something like, You got to hate your parents to follow me. And you, What? Have you heard of the fifth commandment? You got to cut your hand off to follow me, gouge your eye out. Jesus, I'm going to sin without one hand and one eye. It's not going to stop anything. The hyperbole here is, you know what would be easier? It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And just the visual image of it, when I say it, it's like me saying, don't think about a pink elephant. A camel and the eye of a needle. And you start thinking about it. You start holding it up in your mind's eye. Needle? Yeah, I don't think it's gonna fit. I don't think it's gonna go. Jesus, what do you mean? I think what Jesus is saying is, Wealth and money and possessions are dangerous to your spiritual life. And I think the Bible talks about this all over the place. I gave you some verses here. We won't turn to them. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7, 8, 9. It's actually a prayer that God would not make us rich. Because rich people tend to be self-sufficient people. And self-sufficient people tend to have a high view of self and a low view of God. And so in Proverbs, there's just a prayer. Hey, God, I don't want to be rich. I don't know if you've ever prayed that to God out loud. It might kind of scare you to pray that to God. But it's a prayer in the Bible. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, you cannot serve God and money. You will love one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other. You can't worship and serve both. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10, to 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of different evil things in people's lives it's a dangerous thing to your spiritual lives and so that's the first thing jesus says next those who would be saved must despair of their own ability to save themselves and at this point you just have to understand the headspace of the disciples this is why i told you the whole story operates on two wrong assumptions Assumption number one, the rich young ruler, that he can do something to earn his way with God. Wrong assumption number two, the disciples assuming that God is favored towards rich people, people who have wealth and money and possessions and stuff. They looked at those wealthy people and they said, that's the sign that God loves them. Those people are practically already in. And then Jesus comes along and he, with graphic imagery, just blows up their assumption and says, Those people getting into the kingdom, are you kidding me? It's like camels going through needles. And they hear that and they think, Wait a minute, like this is where you just get the blue screen of death on your computer, right? It's not computing, everything's locked down. And they're just saying, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, we thought those people already had one foot in the kingdom. Like, we, we thought they were on the good list. We thought they were going to cut to the front of the line, spiritually speaking. And now you're telling us they don't get in. Jesus, if they can't get in, what do us poor folk do? How are we going to get in? If they can't be saved, the question is, who then can be saved. If you want to understand the logic of this, think about the TV show American Ninja Warrior. I wish I had a picture or a video to show you. I didn't think about it till later this afternoon, so I got nothing good. You just have to imagine this in your brain. You've seen this TV show, grown people, incredibly physically fit people. They look like bodybuilders. They look like marathon runners. They have 2% body fat. They bench press cars. They're awesome. And they put them on this adult obstacle course. And the whole premise of the show is that we enjoy it because they can't make it through. Now, some of them make it. And they'll show you, okay, you know, Johnny from Cleveland made it through. That's not why you're watching, to see Johnny from Cleveland. You're looking to see Susie from Hartford fall off and flip backwards and she can't make it. That's what you want to see. And almost everyone who goes through the course falls. And these people are in incredible shape. And if you watch it, you'll watch it saying, my goodness, my goodness. If they can't make it, what would happen to me? I'd fall off the first starting platform. I wouldn't even make it. If those people can't do it, what chance do I have? The answer is you have no chance, just like I have no chance. You're not going to make it. No chance. And that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. He says, "Look, these rich folks, it's like camel's going through the eye of the needle, and they just completely despair. And they say, "Look, hey Jesus. If they're not going to make it, who's going to make it?" And Jesus is finally getting somebody to think in the right direction, and he looks at him in verse 26 and he says, "You know what? With man, it's impossible." It's impossible. It's not going to happen. Brings us to the next truth on your notes. The salvation of a sinner is the work of God. And I want you to see the the logic of this, and I want you to see the flow of this argument. You've got to read it in the right order. Jesus talks about camels and needles and rich people in the kingdom, verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them, and he said, with man, it's impossible. Okay, stop right there. Is Jesus saying it's impossible for rich people to be saved? It's not the question that they asked him. It's not the question that he's answering. The question they asked is, who? can be saved. It's not just focusing on rich people at this point. The question on the table is, Jesus, if they're not getting in, please tell us who is getting in. Anybody who is getting in. And Jesus says, you know what? With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God is the one who saves sinners. We do not conjure up salvation by our own moral effort, by cleaning ourselves up, by making ourselves presentable to God. Salvation is not the work of man, salvation is the work of God. You see it in this story. You see it in a place, I've given you some other verses like John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13 where Jesus talks about how you can be born again. And Jesus says, you know what? You are not born again by blood because of what family you're born into. You're not born again by the will of man or the will of the flesh. It's not your will or anyone else's will that causes you to be born again. You are born again when you are born of God. You see it in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We follow along with the course of this world, and we are by nature objects of God's wrath. That's a low view of self. But God makes us alive in Jesus Christ. That's his work. It's not our work. It's God's work. Peter says it. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It doesn't come from your power. It doesn't come from your abilities. It is God's power that gives us, grants us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Salvation is a work of God. Last, This is where we started with the cross. We come back to the cross. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And in the end, all of our sacrifices will become gain. And as I have you fill in those blanks, if you have been trained to pull these truths that we talk about from the text, you're looking at this conversation with the rich young ruler and the disciples and you say, I I don't see Jesus talking about the cross here. You're right. Matthew nineteen sixteen to 30 doesn't bring up the cross in this passage. But he brings it up in Matthew 16, and he says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and crucified and buried and then raised from the dead. And he says it again in the next chapter, and if you keep reading into chapter 20, he says it a third time, talking about his betrayal and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection, about him offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So look what Peter actually says in response. It's this last section of verses, verse 27 through 30. Peter's always thinking, and we are fortunate that he's always thinking out loud because we get to listen in as Peter asks the questions that we wish we could have been there to ask. And Peter has just witnessed the rich young ruler come to Jesus and say, Which good thing do I need to do to go to heaven? How about you keep the commandments? Which ones? I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Leviticus. And then he walks away because he says, I've done all this. And Jesus just lays it on the line and he says, Well, then go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And he just walks away from Jesus. And Peter is taking all this in. Peter. He's saying, Jesus told this guy to cash all his chips to the middle and to follow him. And Peter's thinking, I've done that. I mean, my pile of chips wasn't as big as his pile of chips. You know, the nets and the boats and the stuff, but I did that and he didn't do it and he walked away sad, but, but I did that. And so Peter pipes up Verse 27, Peter said, "Uh, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What's in it for us? Jesus always surprises you, doesn't he? If you didn't have the rest of it and you didn't know much about Jesus, you might expect Jesus to scold Peter say, Peter, that is a selfish, self-serving question. What's in it for you? Peter, come on. Get with the program, man. You're no worse than the rich young ruler. That's not what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's the 12. And Everyone who has made a sacrifice, left houses, brother, sister, father, mother, children, lands. That's not an exhaustive list. It's just a representative list. All those who have made a sacrifice for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be be last and the last first. I, I think this gets to the heart of biblical Christianity. And it's on the backside of the cross So, all the pieces aren't completely clear yet, but we look back with hindsight, and I think you can see with clarity what Jesus is driving at here. The Son of Man came to this earth to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners. He's been telling his disciples this twice already, once more to come. I'm here to die as a sacrifice. And there is a sense in which any person who wants to follow Jesus must also make a sacrifice. There's a sense in which Jesus calls you to sacrifice. Take up your cross, die to yourself daily, love him more than family, worship him, not money. Jesus calls people to make a sacrifice. But what Jesus is saying here is, look, Peter. In the big, grand scheme of things, only one of us is going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to make the sacrifice. And the result of my sacrifice is that for you, in the end, it's all going to be gained. No one's going to come up short, Peter, when all the books are tallied up. I'm going to take care of you, Peter, and you're going to come out ahead. This makes me think of the missionary Scottish Missionary David Livingston. He was a medical doctor. And he left what would have been a lucrative career in medicine to go to Africa and for a time to get lost. And people thought he was dead and gone. They didn't know where he was. And he was there traveling around, caring for people, sharing the gospel, telling people about the sacrifice that Jesus had made for sinners. And at one point in his life, somebody asked him, Dr. Livingston, you made such a great sacrifice in leaving a career as a doctor in one of the richest nations on earth to go be a missionary in Africa. What a great sacrifice you made. This is what Livingston said in reply. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. That's true for Livingston and his career as a missionary. That's true for the rich young ruler, although he didn't want to see it. That's true for the disciples who had left their lives to follow Jesus around Palestine. And that's true today in Odessa, Texas in the year 2022. Yes, there's a sense in which Jesus calls you to make a sacrifice. But in the big, grand scheme of things, none of us make a sacrifice. The God of the Bible is not the kind of God who sits around waiting for us to make a sacrifice. That's what we do. That's what the pagan gods did. They sat around and they waited for the people to offer the right sacrifice. That's what every world religion on the earth today tells you to do. You've got to do some great heroic spiritual thing. You've got to make the right sacrifice and then you'll be in. This book says the exact opposite. There's no sacrifice that you can make to earn your way with God. But God himself has come And made the one sacrifice that could make you right with him. And yes, if you want to use this language he calls you to sacrifice some things so that you can follow him. But in the end, in the kingdom of God, what you'll realize is that all you sacrificed was a world that's fading away. To receive a hundredfold in a kingdom that will never end. It's not because we make a great sacrifice for God. It's because Christ has made a perfect sacrifice for us.